been thinking a lot lately about the miracle of God's Word and its preservation and the fact that it even exists for us to read and study and to rejoice over and learn from. There is a wonder in the, in the Word of God. That is, I'm talking about the written Word of God. Of course, the Lord Jesus is the bodily Word of God. He is God manifest in the flesh. It's by His Word that all things are made and upheld. But in the written Word of God, it is an amazing thing. The amazing part is this, that He loves His creatures made in His own image enough to give us His Word in written format. Now, a lot of people want to communicate, and a lot of people write a lot of things, and most of the things they write in the end fail to communicate with very many people at all. And most of the writings of the history of the world have been lost forever. And we cannot know what people wrote or what they thought in those days because of the physical destruction of the Word. But the writing of the Scriptures by God, it goes back further than just that. There is the wonder of language itself that He made humans to be able to speak using words that have meanings that can be communicated. It's been said by a lot of linguists and philologists and whatnot that you really can't think if you don't have words with meanings because you don't have a way to organize thoughts without words that represent like symbols, concepts like love or like work or like beauty or like dirt or like the color red. How can you even think about those things if you don't already have a language, a vocabulary in which to articulate them and to think about them in your mind, and normally you think about thoughts in the language that you grew up with. But also, there is God's condescending to interact with us using written words and languages. I think He made us to have languages and thoughts and writing, principally for the purpose that He might communicate with His people in a substantial and permanent way you know, there can be visions, but they evanesce, don't they? They disappear. Uh, unless the person writes a record of them, who's to say they ever happened? But God's gone further than that. He's insisted on preparing for us and preserving for us a written word from Him. And He has chosen to interact with us using words and languages because... He would have mercy on us. He would commune with us. He would know us and He would have us know Him. Paul tells us in the New Testament that the Word of God is breathed by God. Theonostos is the Greek word. It's one of the only Greek words I know. But it means God breathed and there is a connection in that breath with the idea of the Holy Spirit or the wind God's Word that has been written down and preserved for us was actually breathed by God. That is, that He spoke the words to the writers who wrote them down. And this is not by matter of dictation, but He, by the Holy Spirit, conveyed to them what it was He wanted to say, and they accurately wrote down in their own words what it was that God told them to say. God raised up faithful men to hear Him and to record His words which are preserved down to us today. 
And they did so even in death-defying circumstances. You remember that Isaiah was murdered, that Jeremiah was thrown into prison and carted off to Egypt. Ezekiel lived in desperate times and in horrible circumstances. Of course, the apostles were all martyred for the faith, as far as we know. And yet they were faithful to record what God revealed to them by the Holy Spirit. And then after all that, after they'd written these things down using primitive technologies on skins and papyri and whatnot, then God preserved His Word. And it is said by the experts that the Word of God has more ancient texts that preserve the meanings than any other ancient writing. And the numbers, which I can't repeat from memory, are incredible. Works of literature and of politics and of logic and philosophy and mathematics have a trivial number of manuscripts compared to the deluge of manuscripts that exist of God's Word. And we put all those together and we analyze them carefully and figure out where the transmission errors are and the misspellings and how to fill in the blanks when the manuscript's been chopped off and so forth. And so we have a very sure record of what God wrote through these authors. And we have, after that, a faithful cast of copyists who made copies of these things. They had no xerography or photostats or carbon paper. They had to make hand copies of everything. And writing materials were scarce, but they were faithful. And whole scads of people, thousands and tens of thousands of people made copies of various texts of the Scripture. And some of those copies still exist today. And then there were the people who were faithful to hide these copies from wicked men who sought to destroy them so that they might stamp out God's Word. And then there were those who translated the text from the original Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic into Latin and English and German and all the other languages that we have today. And this was not a safe thing to do. When people started translating the Word of God in the 1400s and 1500s, they were hunted down and put to death. And this was not by pagans that did this, so-called Christians, false believers, part of the Roman Catholic system who didn't want the common man to have the Word of God in his own tongue because then they would see that a lot of the rituals and requirements that the priests so-called imposed on them were not found in God's Word. They were made up by men. And I think particularly of William Tyndale. William Tyndale, of course, worked on the translation of the Tyndale edition of the Bible and His crime, of course, was not just that he was working without permission of the king, King Henry VIII, who styled himself as the defender of the faith, and the Pope gave him all kind of medals for that. But they had to kill William Tyndale because he kept translating the Scriptures according to what the words actually meant rather than what the Roman Catholic system wanted them to mean. And one of the words that he was murdered over was the word church because the word church had become to mean, through corruption, 
the Roman Catholic system, the hierarchy, the papacy, what it really meant in the original language was the congregation of believers, the local congregation. And mystically, of course, it meant the body of Christ, all the saved people who were in Christ by the Holy Ghost. And so he persisted in translating in many places where the translators of the Catholic system had put church, he would substitute the correct word, which is congregation. And for that, he was tracked down and strangled and burnt at the stake by the Roman Catholic Church stake because they couldn't stand to have him translating the word correctly. But of course, within decades, Liberty had broken out to the extent that they were allowed to translate the Scriptures afresh. And now the Word of God is so ubiquitous that it cannot be stamped out. There are too many copies. It's preserved in too many formats, electronic, on the Internet, in printed bound copies that are voluminous all across the world in hundreds of languages. It can't be stamped out. And it is common and cheaply procured, and so therefore, we value it less than we ought to. You know, in olden times, one had a precious copy of the Bible because it wasn't cheap. So they were bought and given to people on special occasions like their birthdays or their graduations or whatever. It was a costly book and it was treated with reverence and of great value. And I know in my bedroom I still have my first Bible which was a small white cover edition of the Bible that my parents gave me when I was really small. And this was almost 60 years ago. And I didn't read it very much because when I got it at first, I couldn't even read. But I knew that it was important and I carried it with me to church and kept it carefully. And there it lies. And yet, for all of that obvious work of God through His mighty power, His providence, His direction, His protection. And yet, our sin and our fallen nature has marred our power to hear and understand and believe God's Word, hasn't it? And all of us have had the experience of reading a text to someone or proclaiming what the Scriptures say, and it just passes through one ear and out the other. There's no comprehension at all by the poor lost man. And we were all that way one day, weren't we? Because without the Holy Ghost changing our hearts to understand, we wouldn't be able to understand it either. Imagine that, that sin has so devastating effect on the ability of mankind to think, to read, to think, to speak, to understand, to believe the things that be of God. We can understand all sorts of other things. But you remember, the Scripture says the natural man, that is the man without the Spirit of God, cannot understand these things because they're the things of God. They're only understood by the Spirit of God. That's why it's so important for us to be born again with the Holy Ghost, that we might have the Spirit of God within us, that we might understand the things of God and so we need that changing of our hearts by the Holy Ghost. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 reminds us that nobody says that Jesus Christ is Lord except it be by the Holy Ghost. 
That doesn't mean that people can't mouth those words. It means they can't accept or believe them. And there are a lot of people today who preach a gospel that says, well, you don't need to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. You just have to receive Him into your heart. You just have to trust in His sacrifice. How can you do that if you don't know that He's Lord? You're denying that He's even God. And that is not a saving faith. So Paul's point is to say that this is more miraculous. Saying that Jesus Christ is Lord and meaning it and understanding it and trusting it is more miraculous than speaking in tongues or prophesying. If you don't understand that relationship between the spiritual gifts and the main spiritual gift, which is the gift of understanding the things of God by the Holy Ghost dwelling in you, then you miss the whole point of the whole section in 1 Corinthians. Now that sin and unbelief and rebellion lead many men to try to stamp out the Scripture, to try to destroy it, as if they think that if they can obliterate the written copy, that somehow what it says will be canceled. And so Old Testament prophets were jailed or killed. Their writings destroyed. Translators were murdered by the Roman Catholic Church state. We mentioned William Tyndale, but he wasn't the only one. Copies of God's Word are physically destroyed by wicked men as if they could ever catch up with all the physical copies that are now extant in this world. And so my mind was drawn to this again by an incident that one of my friends in Great Britain pointed out to me that the Satanist organization in Great Britain publishes pictures of their ceremony where they rip up copies of the Bible to demonstrate their rebellion against God. You know, for people who think that God doesn't exist, they sure spend a lot of time hating on Him, don't they? In olden times, translations were gathered in big heaps, gathered up and burned. They would go seize. The Roman church would go seize printed copies of the New Testament in translation from the printers. Or they would round them up from the people that had bought the copies and burn them to try to stamp out God's Word. My preacher friend uh, Ivan Foster in Northern Ireland wrote a piece over the weekend pointing out that this instance of Satanists tearing up God's Word reminded him of this instance in Jeremiah the 36th chapter that we read this morning. You remember the story that Jeremiah, who's the weeping prophet, had been told by the Lord to write all the prophecies in a scroll. came to pass the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. This word came into Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I spoke unto thee, from the days of Josiah even unto this day, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah. And Baruch wrote the words from the mouth of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord which he had spoken unto him upon a roll of a book. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am shut up. I cannot go into the house of the Lord 
Therefore go thou and read in the roll which thou hast written from my mouth and the words of the Lord in the ears of the people. And skipping on to verse 8, And Baruch the son of Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading in the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house, that is, in the environs of the temple where the people came. These scrolls were made of some sort of animal skin, most likely, but they would be made in little rectangles and then they would be sewn or glued together and turned into a scroll. They didn't have the idea of binding pages in a book yet. You didn't have to get a long scroll before you could start. You started with little pieces and then you added them together. You knit them together bit by bit and you wrote on those pieces in columns and that was how they produced these scrolls. They also called a complete scroll the volume of the book which is a phrase we see in the Scriptures sometimes. First, Baruch goes and reads from this scroll to the public. And then the priests and the rulers, they hear about it and they want to hear what it says. And so he reads it to them. And they were disturbed. It vexed them. Jeremiah had been prophesying several decades since sometime during Josiah's reign But apparently he had not written down the words of God, but now by the Holy Ghost, reminded of them, he writes this voluminous book. You know Jeremiah is very long, and people oftentimes plod through it because they find it so depressing. And the repetition of the prophecy of judgment is pile-driven into one's head as one reads the book of Jeremiah, and it should remind us how easy it is for people to apostatize, to turn against God, to stop believing His promises, to disobey Him even when they have a history of great blessing from the Lord and many miracles to their benefit that the Lord has wrought in their history that they are perfectly well aware of and yet they turn away from the Lord and they descend into sin and darkness and wickedness And he had been prophesying orally to them as the Lord gave him utterance, but now he writes it all down. He dictates what he had said to Baruch. And the Lord is perfectly able to remind him of exactly what it was that he had said to him previously. So we need not bridle at any of that. But the priests and the rulers, they were disturbed. They said in verse 15, Sit down now and read it in our ears. So Baruch read it in their ears. And now it came to pass when they had heard all the words, they were afraid, both one another, and said unto Baruch, We will surely tell the king of all of these words. And so they did. It was reported to the king what Baruch by the prophet Jeremiah was telling the people of the promised judgments of God for their sin. And then in verse 19 we read, the warning the princes gave. They said unto Baruch, Go hide thee, thou and Jeremiah, and let no man know where ye be. So they obviously didn't think the king was going to take too kindly to the message of the prophet Jeremiah. But you see, the king had a solution to the problem. He had a solution to the problem of prophecies of judgment from God, didn't he? And we read that 
in Jeremiah 36, beginning at verse 20, and they went into the king, into the court, but they laid up the roll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe and told all the words in the ears of the king. Now that's just old-timey language for saying that they, they registered the roll with the records clerk, laid it up. To lay something up was to acknowledge formal receipt of an item as a matter of the nation's business. But they left that in the clerk's office and they went and told the king. And so the king sent Jehudi to fetch the roll and he took it out of Elishama, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the ears of the king and in the ears of all the princes which stood beside the king. Then it describes that he had a fire there because it was winter. came to pass when Yehudi had read three or four columns or leaves, he cut it with the penknife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the roll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid nor rent their garments, neither the king nor any of his servants that heard all these words. You see, he thinks this solves the problem. Out of sight, out of mind. Destroy the written prophecy and it's been nullified. That's the way the king was thinking. Nevertheless, Elnathan and Deliah and Gamariah had made intercession to the king that he should not burn the roll, but he would not hear them. But the king commanded Jeramiel, the son of Hamelech, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to take Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet, but the Lord hid them. So this was the king's solution to the problem, destroy God's word. Now at this point, as I was reading through this discussion of the incident of the king destroying God's word, the thought came over me this. Think of all the gospel hope and truth that the king destroyed when he burnt Jeremiah's role. Not just the promises of judgment, of wrath, but the promises of salvation and forgiveness that are all through the work of the prophet Jeremiah. Words spoken to Jeremiah by God through the Holy Ghost. Words meant for our comfort and rescue. This wicked king destroyed that too, you see. Because you can't get to pick and choose which parts of God's Word you want to keep and which parts you discard. Unlike what Thomas Jefferson thought when he went through the New Testament and snipped out the parts that he didn't think should really be there and kept only the parts that agreed with his secular philosophy. But think about some of the texts that we know of in Jeremiah that are so precious to us that this wicked king destroyed. Think of Jeremiah 23 verse 1. Woe unto all the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, saith the Lord. That's an old word for shepherd. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people, ye have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, saith the Lord. So here is a part of one of the prophecies of judgment that Jeremiah had included that the king didn't like to hear. So he burned it. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries, whether I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. 
And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Think of how precious this promise is that even though the rulers and the leaders had betrayed their duty to the people and to God, nevertheless God would restore His people whom He had driven out and bring them back and appoint faithful shepherds to feed them and take away the fear, take away the dismay, take away the want and the hunger. And then verse 5, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute justice and judgment in the earth. Now this is an insult, a slap against Jehoiakim, because he's the descendant of David, isn't he? He's the king. But he's not the kind of king the Lord's talking about here. He's going to raise up a righteous branch, He's going to prosper as king. He's going to reign as king. He's going to execute judgment and justice in the earth and not be the corrupt, wicked, self-serving, licentious slob of a king that Jehoiakim was. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness the Lord our righteousness. Here we see a precious foretelling and promise of the imputed righteousness of our Lord Jesus, who is a king after the house of David, a branch of the house of David, raised up with all those stellar qualities, perfection in his rule, and he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Not our righteousness ourself, but the one who imparts and lays upon us His righteousness as if it were our own. You see, this passage is key to the understanding of the New Testament rendering of the Gospel. And then think of Jeremiah 33 at verse 14, a similar statement. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will perform that good thing that I have promised unto the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. In those days and at that time will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. So you see, that's not only the name of the Lord Jesus as the great King, that He is our righteousness, but it's the name of His people. They call themselves the Lord our righteousness. You see how they have laid aside all pretext, all pretense at establishing their own righteousness. They go straight to the place where it ought to be taken from. We are to be known as the Lord, our righteousness. And what are these promises? It says here that He'll perform that good thing which I have promised unto the house of Israel. Why, they come from Jeremiah chapter 31. We've been reading that several times in our teaching in the book of Hebrews. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord, but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them even to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. These precious texts amongst many others preach the forgiveness of sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness to His people and our rescue from judgment and wrath even though we all richly deserve it. And that wicked king destroyed all of those glorious texts in that fire because he didn't like to hear the promised judgment of God for the sin of the people. And I was thinking, and you consider how the loss of those precious texts would hobble us in our knowledge of the gospel if those texts had been excised from the Scripture by this wicked king. Why, that would give us the impression that imputed righteousness is something Paul dreamed up rather than displaying it had been God's plan all along. They would make us think it was not grounded on ancient revelations from God, but rather was some new thing. But you see, it wasn't a new thing after all. God had promised it by the prophet Jeremiah. But that wicked king had destroyed the copy. And without those texts, it would make us ignorant completely of God's promised new covenant. We would have the old covenant. It would be still the same covenant of obey this and live, disobey and die. Without the writings of Jeremiah, which the king destroyed, the whole basis for the beautiful gospel argument of Hebrews would be torn away. Without the new covenant recorded, there's no need for a better priest. There's no need for a better priest. There's no explanation for the better sacrifice. No basis for the sacrifice of Jesus for us. Hebrews is very critical. And it's founded and pivots upon and depends upon the promise of the new covenant recorded in the book of Jeremiah. There would be no better promises for the writer of Hebrews to refer to. They would have been destroyed by wicked King Jehoiakim. It'd still be the Mosaic covenant of obey and live and disobey and die. There'd be no record of Jeremiah reporting God's word that he promised rescue from sin executed by Jesus' blood. Even the Lord's Supper, think of it, stripped of much meaning. This is my blood of the new covenant, Jesus said shed for many for the remission of sin. But if there was no record of the new covenant, what could Christ have said that would have made any sense? This is my blood shed for the remission of sin. But the Lord Jesus went further than that. He tied His sacrifice on the cross 
to an ancient promise made by God recorded by Jeremiah, which had been destroyed by the king Jehoiakim. He tied it to that promise that He would forgive our sin. And so when Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for many for the remission of sin, without the new covenant, we wouldn't know the promises it made to us. We wouldn't understand the unilateral promises by God to forgive us our sin. We would have no context in which to rejoice in the discovery which we can now rejoice in because the promise of the new covenant was maintained, wasn't it, for us? Oh, right. God God promised He would forgive our sins Himself. And we never understood how. But now Jesus tells us that His bloodshedding executes that new covenant promise that God forgives our sins according to His ancient new covenant promise by the sacrifice of Jesus, God's Lamb. So you see that filthy, wicked king would have destroyed a crucial text of God's Word upon which so much of our understanding of the gospel of our salvation depends. And that would be a tragic thing. But God's Word could not be destroyed. And we read of this in Jeremiah 36 at verse 27. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Baruch wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah, saying, Take thee again another roll, and write in it all the former words that were in the first roll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. Then took Jeremiah another roll, and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. So that which we so desperately need in God's Word, which the king tried to destroy, God provided for us again in the rewriting of this precious book. Now some of the rabbis take the position that the scroll wasn't really Jeremiah's book. It was just part of the Lamentations. But if you look at the Lamentations, you will see that those are all poems written by Jeremiah about his sorrow at what God would do or had done. And they contain very few words from the Lord prophesying judgment. So that idea is is a wash. It was in fact the book of Jeremiah as it existed at that point. It was therefore an astounding thing that Jeremiah and Baruch should be willing to go back and recopy, rewrite all of that long text of Scripture which the Lord had given and which the king had burned. But there they were. They were faithful. The Lord strengthened them. And that's exactly what they did. And not only that, there were more prophecies that were added to the book when they wrote it back the second time. But note the wrath God exhibited against King Jehoiakim. In verse 29, we read these words. Thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast burned this roll, 
saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land, and shall cause to cease from thence man and beast? Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit upon the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the day to the heat, and in the night to the frost. And I will punish him and his seed and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the men of Judah all the evil that I pronounced against them, but they hearkened not. And the astounding thing about this particular promise of judgment against Jehoiakim is this. That meant that Jehoiakim would not participate in the promised branch of righteousness, in the promised Lord who would come and be the righteousness of His people. That is why Joseph, Mary's husband, could never have been the physical father of the Lord Jesus because he was of the line of Jehoiakim and therefore barred from ever taking the seat of the throne of David or any of his physical offspring. They were cut off from ever being king over God's people. Joseph was of a defunct and judged lineage off of King David, you see. So the Lord Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Ghost. God judged Jehoiakim in part by excluding him and his line from being any lineage to that one who one day would be the righteousness of his people. They were cut off from that lineage completely. That God had promised these special promises of salvation, of gospel forgiveness through the king who was the offspring of David, but Jehoiakim and his line would play no part in it at all. They would be excluded from the possibility that he might ever be kin to that king of righteousness who would save his people from the wickedness that Jehoiakim and his predecessors had led them into. One day there would be a king who would provide the sacrifice to work the great forgiveness of the Lord's people. And God says to Jehoiakim, in effect, you repudiate my judgments, you try to destroy my word, then you will never have a part in my salvation, which I will still declare by my faithful prophet Jeremiah. So there is a significance in the judgment that the Lord issued against Jehoiakim that cut him off from ever being in the line of that righteous branch that one day would bring righteousness and salvation to the people of Israel. No doubt all of this was in the mind of Jesus when He denounced the rulers and priests who rejected the gospel. We read it this morning, Matthew 23, beginning at verse 29. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, If we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have partaken with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which kill the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. How can ye escape? the damnation of hell. Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them 
shall ye scourge in the synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And so we see just one little historical example of how God preserved His Word for us today and how much we profit from it being preserved. And every Lord's Day we recite, don't we, a reference to the book of Jeremiah which wicked King Jehoiakim tried to destroy. But God wouldn't let him. And we praise Him thank Him for it. And we thank Him for telling us of that new covenant promise so that once again we could know that it was not something made up after the fact to justify Jesus, but rather Jesus was the fulfillment of it, the executor of it, the one who empowers it unto the saving of all of His people. And that's one of the things we celebrate around the Lord's table. We celebrate the body and blood of Jesus that were made a sacrifice to bring about, to fulfill, to execute the forgiveness of sins that God had promised in the new covenant that wicked king tried to hide and to destroy and to keep the knowledge of God's promise from the Lord's people. But praise God, he did not succeed. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table. Think about how beautiful it is that He preserved His Word so that we could understand it better, understand the Lord's table better, understand the work of Christ as our great high priest of our final sacrifice for sin and of the salvation that He wrought for us at Calvary's tree. Let's give thanks for the bread first. O oh God, our Father, we rejoice in this bread which Your Son left us to picture His broken body as Your sacrifice on Calvary's tree for our sin. We thank You that He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. We thank You that You brought Him into this world incarnate in our humanity, but God of very God, the only One who could be the perfect Lamb to take away our sin. We thank You that His body and blood execute that new covenant promise that wicked men tried to destroy but you wouldn't let them. And we thank you that you've left it for us to study and to marvel over and to give you praise over. Bless us as we partake of this bread, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. I'd like to ask my father if he give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus. And the Scriptures tell us after they had supped, 
He took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as you do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 93 in the black book. Majestic sweetness sits enthroned upon the Savior's brow, His head with radiant glories crowned, His lips with grace o'erflow. Let's stand as we sing this hymn.